Thank you for that clear and excellent reading. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Um, happy Father's Day to many of you in this room. I thought it'd be appropriate for us to begin by praying uh, for God's strength as we come to us. Why don't you join me in prayer, church? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for another beautiful Sunday, for the change in season and for the sunlight and for all these signs of your favor and your love and your blessing upon us. And we thank you for the beautiful gift of fatherhood. Uh, and so this morning we ask that you would, in your kindness, grant strength to many of our fathers in this room to fulfill their privilege and responsibility. We recognize it's a big task. Um, and so, Lord, we pray for many, including myself, who feel deeply inadequate for the task. Uh, would you strengthen us as we celebrate this gift from you? Lord, we also want to pray for soon-to-be fathers in this room. Uh, we thank you for the great joy of anticipation and longing. And then we ask you, Lord, that those who feel anxious and weary would find comfort and hope in you. Lord, we also pray for those who wish to be fathers uh, but struggle in that longing, uh, perhaps because of the uh, fallen nature of our world or because of uh, difficulty, trials, or sickness. Our Lord and God, we ask that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, uh, and that you would give them a purpose that is beautiful, that is wide, that is large, uh, and they will find their hope in you. Lord, we also pray for fathers who have lost children. Uh, there is a deep pain and agony that comes from that, uh, from being robbed of this opportunity to raise their, their child to their fullest potential. Our Lord and God, we recognize that Father's Day may be a very painful reminder of their loss. Um, and so, our Lord and God, we pray that and their grief would drive them to you, in whom there is abundance of comfort, there is an abundance of grace. Lord, today we also want to pray for children who have lost their fathers, uh, and Father's Day is a tangible reminder of that loss. There is a deep pain and grief that comes from that, especially if it's loss from tragedy. Uh, gracious God, we do ask that you would fill their hearts with a deep sense of comfort, um, especially uh, if their fathers um, trust in you and have a firm faith in you, uh, our gracious God, uh, cause them to turn to you. We thank you, dear Lord, that all of us in this room uh, have a loving Heavenly Father who never disappoints us, who never gives up on us, who never lets us down. And so today, Lord, we ask for your grace and your strength and your comfort. Lord, as we come to the preaching of your word this morning, we ask you, Lord, that you will open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As mentioned before, church, we're continuing in our series in Hosea, and we've come to chapter 4 today. Uh, and our sermon today is a little bit interesting because it is a sermon about a sermon. Uh, in other words, I'll be preaching on something that Hosea has preached. You see, Hosea 4 verse 1 starts with these words, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. The expression, hear the word of the Lord, was a classic way that the prophets of the Old Testament began their speeches and their sermons. It was designed to inform their listeners that what they're about to say carries the weight and the authority of God himself. And so what follows in the rest of chapter 4 is the sermon that Hosea delivers. And today I'll be expounding on his preaching of the word. What's more, though, what makes this interesting as well, is that this sermon is not just to us as a church. Um, it's specifically a sermon to your pastor. 
Uh, and that happens to be me, right? Uh, our passage speaks of the responsibility that leaders and ministers and pastors have. And so a significant part of today's application will be application for me. I'll be preaching to myself. And so hopefully I won't fall asleep either, right? Uh, but there'll be still uh, lots of relevance for us as a church. And I think the heart of what God is saying to us in Hosea 4 is this. You ready? The heart of what God is trying to say to us is this. Church, do not settle for fluff. Do not settle for fluff. And most of you will know that the word fluff means something that has little to no substance. Right? The concept comes from the actual material called fluff. It's a soft fiber from fabrics which can look big in your hands, right? Uh, but weighs close to nothing. It's fluffy. It has no substance. You see, for us today, the danger for us is spiritual fluff. It is sermons and teachings from leaders who have a lot to say, but nothing of substance or value. Or it is leaders who teach and preach things that are completely contrary to God's word. As a church, Grace Point, do not settle for fluff. How is that point made? Well, let's firstly consider the core of Hosea's sermon. That's point one. And a careful reading of Hosea chapter 4 reveals that Hosea is a really good preacher, and he has three points as well, right? Too bad they don't alliterate. But here are the points, right? Firstly, Israel is unfaithful. That's point one of his sermon. Uh, Point two, their lives are a complete mess or ruin is the, the language of the text. And thirdly, they do all this because they do not know God. Three points from Hosea, right? And we see the first point here in verse 1, right? Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you in the land. There is, there's the word, no faithfulness. Let's pause there for just a moment because we are very familiar with this well-rehearsed theme of unfaithfulness in the book of Hosea. It's all that we've been talking about from chapters 1 to 3, right? And you see, examples of their unfaithfulness are once again particularly seen. Uh, Look at verses 12 to 13 in our chapter. Look at those verses with me. The Israelites were consulting and worshipping wooden idols. They were engaging in pagan Baal worship by visiting temple prostitutes. They were making sacrifice and offerings on mountaintops and hills. These were all pagan practices of worship. Again, rather than remaining faithful to God, who has been faithful to them? Israel has chosen to turn their backs against the God of the Bible and worship false gods and idols instead. Point one of Hosea's sermon is this. Guys, what are you doing? God is angry at you because of your spiritual unfaithfulness. The second point of his sermon is this. Their lives are a complete mess. Verse 2 gives us an idea, right? Look at verse 2 with me. Hosea says here that there is cursing, there is lying, there's murdering, there's stealing, there's adultery, there is the breaking of every possible moral and ethical boundary. Now, church, it's actually very hard for us to imagine what this looks like. Because you see, there is a degree of social nicety in our culture, especially here in Australia, right? You see, we largely are respectful of each other. Uh, You were taught by your mother not to swear. You were taught by your teachers that lying is bad. In terms of our legal system, people are punished for murdering. There is a degree of social pressure which discourages people from stealing. 
And despite the fact that we live in a very sex-positive world, adultery and infidelity is still frowned upon. Isn't that very interesting, right? There are still these unspoken boundaries that enable our society to function to a certain degree. Now imagine a world where these boundaries did not exist. Where it was fine to call someone whatever comes to your mind, no matter how vulgar. Where truth wasn't on and you just could not trust what people around you say and do. Where you couldn't even just leave your phone on a table and turn your back for a second because you don't know if you'll come back to it where you have no confidence that your partner will be faithful to you. You know, this is an anxiety-inducing, emotionally exhausting, and physically demanding world. It's a complete mess. And Hosea is pointing this out. Israel's rejection of God and their unfaithfulness towards Him has led them to this mess. Hosea is saying in his sermon, guys, can't you see? Your unfaithfulness towards God has led you to this mess. What's interesting about all this is that there's a deeper core or deeper heart issue. Israel's unfaithfulness and the messiness of their lives is connected to one fundamental problem. Here is the third point of Hosea's sermon. All of this is happening because they do not know God. Look at verse 1. Uh, This here is a little bit lost in the NIV translation. It says, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the Lamb. But you see, the word acknowledgement actually comes from the word knowledge. And so the ESV translation, if you have that in front of you, it renders this verse as no knowledge of God in the Lamb. You see, the problem is that Israel does not know God. But it's not just verse 1 that makes this point. If you read along with me, the same point is made in places like verse 6. Do you see it with me? Verse 6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as priests. They do not know God. And our church is very important for us to define what knowledge of God means, right? You see, firstly, we need to note that knowledge of God is based on information and truth. Knowledge of God is based on information and truth. That means that there is an objectivity to truth. There is right and wrong. There is a cognitive and mental aspect to knowledge. It's not just what we feel, but also what we can tangibly and logically discern in our minds. That's knowledge. It's also something that can be learned through careful instruction. Church, you see, we must never apologize for the fact that Christians value knowledge, information, and truth. It is not necessarily elitist to value these things as long as they are a means to an end and not an end unto itself, right? It's not wrong. But clearly, uh, knowledge as it relates to information and truth is important. Second of all, knowledge is information and truth grounded in Holy Scripture. The Bible is the source, or as the Old Testament would say, the law of God. Look at verse 6 with me. Their lack of knowledge comes from the fact that they have ignored the law of God. You see, that's how God has chosen to make himself known to us. He told Moses and the prophets to write down his word and his will. He sent Jesus as the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, and then had His disciples and apostles record His life and instruction. The Bible is God's perfect revelation to us. 
It's by prayerfully reading, studying, savoring, and engaging with it that we come to a healthy knowledge of God. But you see, thirdly, and very importantly, knowledge of God is meant to overflow into rich relationship with God and deep love for God. And that is so critical, a deep love for God. You see, what we must not miss is that here in verse 3, there is a triad of problems, three issues, right? There is no faithfulness. You talked about that. There is no knowledge. We're talking about that. But sandwiched right in between the two is this. There is no love. Uh, You've probably heard us say this before, right? The heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. And so knowledge is information and truth grounded in Scripture but intended to deepen our love for God. And now this intimate connection between Israel's unfaithfulness, the messiness of their lives, and, and knowledge of God is really significant for us, isn't it? Because it shows a particular pattern that I believe is true for many of us. It illustrates the fact that life goes sideways when we reject God or when we do not want to know God. Life becomes a mess. A knowledge of God is like the first button of your shirt. I'm not sure if you buttoned your shirt this morning. But if you get the first button wrong, everything else that follows becomes crooked. It's a mess. For Israel, we see more of this mess in verse 3, right? Where God punishes them by withdrawing essential agricultural provisions. In verse 6, children are cursed. Verses 8 to 11, people are drunk and lost in pleasure. Verses 15 to 19, Israel is so contaminated with sin that God tells them not to interact with their neighbors, lest they contaminate their neighbors with sin as well. Hosea is saying this in his sermon. Guys, don't you get it? You are experiencing all this chaos because you have chosen to not know God. Uh, But you see, I find it quite interesting that Hosea's harshest warnings, harshest critiques, were not fully unleashed upon Israel, God's people. No, no, his, his strongest and strictest critique is on Israel's leaders. What you'll notice, uh, look at your Bibles with me. In verse 4, there's actually a change of tone, right? Uh, This change of tone is indicated through the inverted comma. And that here shows that God's voice is now taking over Hosea's. In other words, God has now taken the microphone halfway through the sermon. And God is now speaking directly from verse 4, basically all the way to the end of Hosea chapter 4. And he speaks with shocking sternness and severity. Verse 4, God is saying, hey priests, I've got a problem with you. Verse 5, God is saying, hey prophets, you're not off the hook either. I've got a problem with you as well. And what's the problem? Well, verse 6 tells us, they have rejected knowledge. They have ignored the law of God. Now, you see, church, prophets and priests were given a surprisingly straightforward task. There were a lot of things they should do. There were some things they could do. But there is one thing they must do. And it was the sacred duty to give instruction based on God's word. They were meant to search the word, study the word, and speak the word so that God's people would know God, so that they would know how to live. 
and the failure to do so resulted in all of these shocking consequences. Their failure to fulfill their fundamental sacred duty had meant that God's people did not know God through his word. Their lives descended into a chaos and mess. They turned their backs against God. Uh, Now you see, the office of priest and prophet has ceased since the period of the New Testament. But as we read passages like Ephesians chapter 4, we note that the fundamental sacred duty remains, but has been passed on to pastors and elders today. And you see, like prophets and priests, there are a lot of things that pastors should do. There are some things they could do, but what they must do. It is found in passages like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Why? Because you see, there is nothing more important than for God's people to know God through his word. The only way to do that is to uncover his revelation to us through Holy Scripture. Now, now here's the thing, though. That sounds surprisingly simple, but it's actually not. Because, you see, there are a ton of temptations that stop priests and prophets, and today, pastors and elders, from being faithful to their core and primary task, the task of teaching God's Word. You see, Hosea chapter 4 doesn't fully tell us why priests and prophets abandon their posts. It doesn't tell us why they abdicate their responsibilities. But church, I can think of at least three reasons for why it is difficult to remain faithful to the calling of preaching the word. I can think of at least three reasons. First of all, there could be a real fear of upsetting people. And I think I know this fear too well. Uh, Because here's the reality, much of what God has to say in his word runs against the grain of our culture. Uh, For example, our wealth says, you the individual are the most important person in the world and your primary purpose in life is to be happy. No one should get in the way of that. Yet the Bible says that our chief aim and purpose is to glorify God, to know him, to enjoy him, to love and obey him. The natural man and woman desires to make much of themselves and we will listen to whatever voice that trumpets this message. But Holy Scripture speaks the opposite of that. We are but creatures made in God's image and therefore valued and treasured, yet remarkably small in comparison to the rest of the universe. Sometimes teaching God's word and God's law faithfully will make you enemies even if you preach fundamental doctrines like sin and grace. And that's to say nothing about the Bible's moral and ethical teachings regarding sex and politics and the like. They are not popular, but they lead to flourishing. Uh, And yet it's tempting, right? To water down, to simplify, to dull out what we would call the rough edges of Scripture. But God's word to pastors and elders who preach today is this. You will be held accountable to God. I feel like I should be holding a mirror right now, right? But it's not just the fear of upsetting people. Another reason why it's tempting to reject knowledge of God, to ignore the law of God, is because we want to please the wrong sorts of people. Because we want to please the wrong sorts of people. You see, on the one hand, there is the fear of a group of people. On the other hand, it's a desire to please another group of people. Let me give you an extreme example and maybe a bit of history lesson as well, right? Uh, There's this concept called theological liberalism, fancy term, right? Uh, But it basically 
is a theological position that denies essential doctrines of the Christian faith. They deny the virgin birth, the death and resurrection of Christ, the inerrancy of God's word, the necessity of faithful salvation, the second coming. Basically, anything we profess in the Apostles' Creed, they deny. They say they want nothing to do with it. There are churches and denominations, even in Sydney today, that subscribe to theological liberalism. They call themselves Christians. They may even have a cross in their church, but a careful examination of their understanding of God shows that they're actually quite far from the faith. And now you see, many people have sought to understand the history of theological liberalism, like how did it come about? And I want to say there are a range of factors to it. There's no way to simplify it. But you see, one of the primary reasons is actually this. A group of Christians saw the rise of modern science and recognized that the ancient Christian faith posed too many obstacles for contemporary people. The claims of science seems to discredit some fundamental Christian doctrine like resurrection, really? Like miracles, really? No one could possibly believe in that. And plus, what would they think of me if I get up on stage and preach on these things? I'd be seen as uneducated, backward, and a fool. So a generation thought, let's water down the teaching of Scripture so that most, if not all, could digest it. Do you see how that's a way to reject knowledge of God and to ignore God's law? Uh, it is attempting to please the wrong sorts of people. Uh, you know, the trouble is too many pastors today are busying themselves with entertaining goats than preaching to sheep. They're trying to keep unbelievers happy instead of helping believers grow in their sanctification. There is such a real desire to be liked, accepted, and approved as being current, contemporary, and respectable. Ah, but this is the sort of attitude that stirs God's anger for abandoning the call, calling to preach. But here's one more. The last reason is probably the most innocent, but equally as damning. The third reason to abandon one's post is just pure and outright laziness. Laziness. Yes, some pastors give up their sacred duty of preaching and teaching God's word. They plunge their churches into spiritual and moral jeopardy. They bring great harm upon themselves and God's people because they are lazy and slothful. They're lazy either in their training, thinking that a few years of advanced biblical training is not necessary, or when they do it, they don't treat it seriously. They may be lazy in their preparation, thinking that they can whip up a sermon each week in less than a few hours. There is an insanity to that sort of thinking which says that this is the word of God, the most important thing in the world that we need to know, but I don't have to give my best to prepare for it. You see, a sermon is no best man's speech, nor is it a glorified TED talk. When God's word is being accurately handled and preached, the congregation, you are hearing God's voice. Do we understand the significance of what we're doing when we're gathered here? That week in and week out, we are sitting with our Bibles open, ears ready, hearts and mind engaged to be formed by God as he speaks to his congregation. How could pastors possibly be lazy with this? 
One of my great ministry heroes, John MacArthur, started as a pastor almost 60 years ago. He's still active in ministry. He's still at the same church where he started. Uh, But before he started, when he was in his 20s, he negotiated one thing with his church, basically just one thing. He asked that the church would give him 30 hours a week of uninterrupted time to study God's word, to teach God's word. 30 hours a week of uninterrupted time. That's kind of insane when you think about it, right? The average working week is what? 40 hours? Pastors like John, maybe some of you, right? Clock up maybe close to 50 to 60 hours on a busy week. And that means he's asking that at least half of his time should be spent in his study without distraction and just focus at the feet of Jesus in the Word and learning so that he has something worth saying on Sunday. Church, would you be okay if your pastor spent 30 hours a week studying to teach you God's Word half the week, more than half the week? Where he would have to say no to a lot of good and important things because there is something greater and more important. Now, of course, I am no John MacArthur, right? I have not made any negotiations with Grace Point or anything of the same effect. I'm just happy that you want me to be your pastor. Or maybe you put up with it or tolerate with it. I don't know. Don't tell me, right? But I think this story illustrates something very important. That it is absolutely essential, critical, and non-negotiable for a pastor to have his nose deep in the Bible for an extended period of time each week and then emerge on Sunday with something worthwhile to say. And now don't mistake me, I'm not saying that a pastor's only task is to preach, not at all. Uh, His primary duty is not that of a teacher or a professor. He is called to be a pastor, a shepherd. Preaching is one of his tools. Pastors are to pray, to spend time with people, to love and discipline people, to disciple people. And so church, do not be content with a pastor who only preaches, but at the same time, do not settle for a pastor who doesn't study and preach the word well. It's too important, don't you see? Hosea here traces all of the tragedies, messy lives, spiritual unfaithfulness, all of which provoke God's anger. It all comes from leaders who have rejected a knowledge of God and forgotten or ignored God's law. The stakes are high. Young men in this room who are training for ministry, think twice about what you're training for. Church, I know my temptations and these are warnings for me. But as a church, Grace Point, do not settle for fluff. Your spiritual walk is too important to settle for anything else than a careful study and presentation of what God has to say to us each and every week. How does it land for us then? What's the concern to us? Come with me to point three as we reflect on a few implications. Firstly, I want us to once again trace the connection so that it is unequivocally clear, right? Israel's grave sin of spiritual unfaithfulness has expressed itself in a heap of mess. God punishes them for that unfaithfulness. But but I want you to notice, do you see the pattern of punishment? It's clearest from verse 7 onwards. You see, God's punishment is not particularly inflicting pain upon them. No, no, God's punishment is allowing the people to have what they want. God's punishment 
is allowing the people to have what they want. Verse 9, right? God says, I will punish them and repay them. Underline that word if you have your Bibles with you. Repay them for their deeds. The word repay means return. We're familiar with the expression return of investment, ROI, right? You put something in, you get something in return. You reap what you sow. That's what's happening with Israel. They've sowed something in and God is saying, here, you can have your returns. There is a strong Romans 1 verse 24 vibe here, isn't there? That God is handing them over to the desire of their hearts. What does that look like? Look at verse 10. They will eat, but never have enough. Now you see, the act of eating here in this verse is not about having enough sustenance for each day. Eating here in verse 10 is about indulgence. It is about uncontrolled greed. The Israelites aren't just eating because they need their three meals a day. They are gorging themselves with food. They weren't loving food for its purpose. They were using it sinfully. God's saying here, eat all you want, but the tragedy is you will never have enough. Notice this. God doesn't stop them from eating. He allows them to do what they want and allows them to get senselessly lost in that. The same continues in the rest of verse 10. Read along with me. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish. The word prostitution here is not just about payment for sex. It's not just sex with prostitutes. The root word actually means sexual immorality and infidelity much more generally. Verse 10 was actually addressing the issue of illicit sexual relationships outside of the safe boundaries of marriage. The passage is telling us this, the Israelites will have sex, but they will always feel empty and disconnected. Tragedy, isn't it? You see, sex was given by God for the bonding between husband and wife, to create life for mutual enjoyment. And yet here, they are abusing sex. So it is between anyone and everyone. Rather than create life, it robs all parties of life by producing guilt, hurt, distrust, and shame. Rather than mutual enjoyment, it is for personal enjoyment, even at great cost and expense of the other person. They are using sex rather than enjoying sex. And so their punishment, they can have sex but they will never have what their hearts long for, flourishing. You see, consistently all throughout Scripture, but also expressly clear in Hosea 4, the pattern of God's punishment is this, withdrawing His loving guidance and allowing people to have what they want. Because here's the reality, what humans want apart from God always, always, always ruins us because of sin. Verse 11, you want to get drunk on wine? God permits that and allows themselves to drink them silly. Verses 12 to 13, you want to worship wood and trees? God permits them to be led into confusion and destruction. Verses 14 and 19, you want to prostitute yourself to other gods? God permits that and allows them to be stripped of dignity. Church, let there be no confusion. If you are living in unrepentant sin right now and nothing is stopping you from that, do not mistake that as God's blessing over your life. That is actually God's punishment. 
He is allowing you to let sin run its own course. And he will allow you to taste the fruits of your own sin. For God to intrude upon the sin of your life is actually an act of grace. For him to step in is mercy. For him to interrupt and shock your system about the reality of sin in your life is love. Which is why the heart of the gospel is seen so clearly in the book of Hosea. Because that's exactly what God does. He is interrupting and intruding on the sins of Israel. Verse 1, Hosea preaches at the top of his voice, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. It is like a light shining into a dark room. Rather than allowing the darkness to spread any further, God steps in, calls out their sin, and offers forgiveness. You see, the gospel is interruption. Interruption to our heart and habit of sin. Interruption to our complacency. Interruption to our idolatry. That interruption is most vivid in Christ who descended his heavenly throne to interrupt the brokenness of this world with his grace and love. He offers his life as a ransom for sin. So that all who trust in him do not have to continue in that path of destruction. They can turn around. In the words of Joel 2 verse 26, they can eat and be satisfied. In the words of Proverbs 5 verse 18 to 19, they will love and they will flourish. In the words of Luke 12, 19 to 20, they will drink and they will be merry. All because they have God. The good news of Isaiah 4 is that they do not need to settle for fluff. Because God has given them fullness. More of that in the coming weeks. But the same good news is for us today. All we could ever want and need is found in Christ. God has intruded, broken in, so that the pattern of sin and punishment is no more. And he offers for all who humbly trust in him today. If you can hear the sound of my voice, recognize that God has not given up on him. You can turn to him today. What's another implication? Well, based on our reading of Hosea 4, I hope you can see the tight connection between belief and behavior. Belief and behavior. What we believe in will shape how we live. You see, for the Israelites, their failure to know God has resulted in chaos and confusion. What's more, their knowledge of wrong things has caused them to behave in gross and immoral ways. Belief and behavior are deeply intertwined. I don't think you need me to convince you of that. Ideas have consequences. Which is why our last implication is this. I believe Hosea 4 is inviting us as a church to have a greater concern for the Word of God. Greater concern for the Word of God. If it is true that spiritual unfaithfulness and chaotic lives are connected to not knowing God, then there are actually fewer things more important than to know God through His Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, right? says, like newborn babies, crave. That word crave is so powerful. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in salvation. The word crave is to speak of longing, hunger, and desire. In your personal lives, but especially have a concern for it 
from your pastor who is tasked to teach and preach God's word to you. Church, be concerned with what your leaders are teaching because there are massive consequences for your soul. What does that concern look like? I have three recommendations and I'll end with this, right? Uh, Firstly, come along on Sundays with eager expectation to receive God's word. Eager expectation to receive God's word. Anticipate that you will hear God's voice. I don't know what you think you're coming to when you arrive to church on Sundays. But you are having an audience with God along with God's people. Now, there's lots of fun and joy when it comes to gathering with God's people, right? But there is a royal seriousness to it as well. As a result, there should be a sense of, I can't wait to listen, engage, and receive. There should be that kind of attitude. We're concerned about it, right? Oh, church, come ready. Come ready physically by being well-rested from the night before rather than you know, being just, just tired. Come ready chronologically by arriving a little earlier so you're not exhausted from rushing to church. Come ready consistently by making Sundays a priority in the liturgy of your life. Maybe even saying no to good things because this year is too important. Come ready spiritually by preparing your heart to receive. Eager expectation to receive God's word. Second of all, pray for your pastor. It seems a little bit self-serving, but I've once heard it said, that you get the pastor you pray for. You get the pastor you pray for. A ministry friend of mine, Peter Ryan, who heads up a preaching training ministry called Corn Hill here in Sydney, he once told me, it's really funny, that a lot of churches in Sydney deserve the sort of bad preaching they get. They deserve it because they never pray that their pastors would improve. Here's the thing. If you've heard my previous points about eager expectation and you're thinking, yeah, sure, but Elliot doesn't give us much to expect, right? Then please pray for me. I so long to be a better preacher and pastor. I know the weightiness and significance of this task. I know the consequences. I know that you as a church deserves nothing but the very best. So pray for me frequently and regularly. Pray for my character and godliness. Pray for my preparation. Pray for my health. Pray for my family. Pray for my actual preaching. I need every single bit of it. By God's grace and kindness, I will become more of the pastor that you pray I will become. I do not want to ignore knowledge and move beyond the teachings of Scripture. I need your help to stay faithful. Church, listen closely. You deserve a pastor who is careful, faithful, and clear in the word. And church, if I or any other pastor who preaches here does not demonstrate any of these characteristics, then pray that God will replace me, replace us with someone else who values this as much as God does. Do not settle for fluff. You deserve nothing less than this. And so lastly, concern for the word, read your Bibles, and give me honest feedback. Read your Bibles and give me honest feedback. Two parts to this, right? Two parts of feedback. It is both constructive feedback for improvement, 
uh, but also encouraging feedback for ongoing strength. In terms of constructive feedback, read your Bibles to assess and determine if what I've said is true. You see, I try to preach in a way so that when you walk away and somewhere during the week you read the same passage again, you read and go, oh yeah, I can see where Pastor Elliot got his sermon from the text. If you want help to know how to read your Bibles better, sign up for T3, right? We want to give you all the tools necessary, but read the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. And then give me honest feedback. Give me constructive feedback so that I know how to improve. Now, if possible, don't overwhelm me with it. That would be great, right? But if you have a point of feedback, think about it, pray over it, and then graciously speak to me about it because it is critical for you and it's critical for the church. Don't settle for fluff. But also, uh, please kindly give me positive, encouraging feedback so I know what to keep on doing. Uh, You see, I'm constantly experimenting with new things when I preach. I'm not sure if you've noticed that, right? Sometimes I cut things out, I add things in. But if you ever feel that there is something that's really working, then let me know so that I keep doing it. Without feedback, I'm just kind of guessing, right? Of course, I try to read the room. I try to seek feedback out. But hey, if you feel like there is something that has worked or something encouraging, please let me know. It's not just encouraging to my soul, but also to my craft, right? Careful and clear preaching of God's word is too critical for your health as a Christian and for our health as a church. I need your help and honest feedback. Do not settle for fluff. Church, if you go to a very traditional, reformed, or Presbyterian church building, you'll notice when you walk in that there is an elevated wooden pulpit at the front of the church, right? It is elevated because it reminds us that when a pastor is preaching, he's speaking on behalf of God. And that's why uh, traditional reformed pastors also wore a black robe to dull out everything that is about him so that when people look at him and hear him, they're not seeing the person. They're seeing the person whom the, po- the preacher is pointing to, right? But it's elevated because God's word is coming down onto his people. It's very interesting. But if you ever get to visit one of these old buildings, you'll also notice, very interestingly, that there is a small door at the pulpit that locks, right? Now, upon first glance, most people think that the door is locked during the weekdays so that no one goes into the pulpit if they have no business being there. Or maybe so that the kids don't run in to mess up the things, right? Well, that's not true. The door is not to lock people out. It is to lock someone in. Because you see, in these old churches, the services would begin and usually start with a procession, right? The minister would walk in with the elders, a bit like a wedding, kind of, kind of crazy, right? And the pastor would walk in and right behind him would be an elder. And what happens is that the minister or the pastor will walk down the aisle and head straight to the pulpit. And the elder, someone like Mark, would come up right behind me And once the pastor walks into the pulpit, the elder shuts the door and locks the pastor in and says something to the effect of, stay there and don't come out until you've given us God's word. Seems bizarre. Seems a little bit unnecessary. But given God's word to us in Hosea 4, perhaps we'll realize it's not crazy or not as crazy as we think it is. 
This is what we need for the life and the health of our church. What could be more important? The preaching and teaching of God's word so that people would know God and love God is a profoundly weighty task. So much hangs on it. Church, do not settle for fluff. My hope and prayer is that you would help me to not settle for fluff either. For the glory of God's name and for the good of the church. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious and kind intrusion here in Hosea 4. That instead of being silent and leaving us in the darkness, you speak. You speak a word of judgment in order to show us the consequences, but also in order to draw us unto repentance because of your grace and mercy towards us. Father, I pray that we would uh, not be stunned. We will not be stationary. Uh, we will not be cold and indifferent towards your word. I ask you, Lord, that uh, for some living in unrepentant sin, that this would shock them and show them your intrusion of grace. But as a whole, that you, Lord, would remind us of the necessity of your word for the health of our church. Our Lord and God, please help us to not settle for fluff. Help us to not be complacent with entertainment. Help us to be so driven to yearn and to crave and to long for pure spiritual milk. For it is through that that we grow up in our salvation. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.